Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to the Sound Medicine Podcast. I'm Barbara Lewis. This is episode number 10. That pill you took this morning, the new implant in your hip, or even the cancer treatment you're hoping will give you more time before it makes it into the marketplace. That medicine, that device, has to pass a rigorous set of tests that showed it was safe, it was effective, and it was an improvement over what was already available. That's what we're going to dig into today, the risks and rewards of clinical trials. My name is Linnea Olson. When I was presented with this opportunity initially to join my first clinical trial, I had been told I had three to five months left to live. So I was between a rock and a hard place. Linnea Olson is a mother of three in her mid-50s from Lowell, Massachusetts. In 2005, she had a stubborn cough and she had shortness of breath. And then she was stunned to learn she had stage one lung cancer. She'd never smoked. I have now participated in three different phase one clinical trials. Despite surgery and chemo, Linnea's cancer came back. But since there really weren't any other treatment options for her, she and her doctor took a watch and wait approach for the next few years. But by then the cancer had spread. A biopsy and genetic test revealed a rare mutation. And that just happened to be the focus of a phase one clinical trial. So she volunteered. Well, my first clinical trial, I know I was terrified that first day I went in. I, I really I had no idea what would happen. You know, this was just such a bizarre concept to me to be putting this drug in my body that so little was known about. It was 2008, and generally the understanding was that if you participated in an early clinical trial, it might extend your life for a few months, but nobody had expectations like some people have grown to develop now, and certainly I didn't. And the only other person who had participated in this trial at my hospital died within a couple of weeks, in part because of side effects from the drug. So I was terrified, but I think for me what it represented and still represents was this glimmer of hope where I had none. And for me, options are the real definition of hope. So 
I see clinical trials as my next best hope. We'll get back to Linnea's story in just a few moments, but first, let's take a look at the big picture here. If we want a healthcare system that provides the best healthcare to all of us when we need it, we need to know what works in medicine. And this is how we find out what works. That is Dr. Ron Kral. He's a neurologist. He's designed and led clinical trials in both academia and as the former chief medical officer at GlaxoSmithKline. He now lives in Colorado and he consults in private practice. We reached out to him after reading some disturbing findings from a survey of about 1,500 consumers and nearly 600 physicians. It was conducted by Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. That survey found that only 35% of either group were likely to sign up to be part of a clinical trial. So we asked Dr. Kroll to walk us through how those trials are designed and what researchers are hoping to learn. Clinical trials come in a lot of forms, a lot of different types, but the classical clinical trial that we kind of consider the gold standard has, has two or, th- or three components to it. The first one is that um, inevitably what we're doing is comparing one or more treatments with a standard treatment. Um, and the question we're asking is, is the, is the experimental treatment different from, usually better than, the comparison treatment? That's kind of the way we have to pose the experiment in order to, to really know if we have a result. And what that means is that we take a group of patients, we randomly divide them in half, and one half gets one treatment, and one half gets the standard treatment. So one half gets the experimental treatment, one half gets the, the standard treatment. And then we compare the results of those two groups. And so that's the kind of classic paradigm of trying to answer the question, is drug A better than drug B or is drug A better than no treatment? Can I stop you right there? Because I think there's a, a, there's a misconception that if people think they, they, if they go into a clinical trial, they'll either get a placebo, which is nothing, or they'll get the drug. Yes, and a fair number of trials are constructed that way, but the placebo treatment is almost always given with what is called standard of care. So uh, the question being asked is, is the new treatment going to be better than the standard of care that you would get if the new treatment didn't exist? And the reason that there's a placebo is that the placebo and the standard of care treatment are kind of what you're comparing in the trial. Okay. And yeah, and where I think the misconception is, is I think sometimes people hear placebo and they don't think they're going to get any treatment at all, not including not the standard of care. Right. And, and I think that is a very common misconception and it's incorrect. The placebo is given because what we want to do in that same clinical trial is we don't want either the patients or the physicians to know who's getting which treatment. And the reason for that is that we are powerfully biased people as persons. So when we know what we are getting, it influences in ways that often surprise us how we respond to that treatment. It's particularly true in a lot of illnesses where 
symptoms are an important part of what we're trying to moderate or treat. And so the classic way to prevent that bias, if you will, that if I know I'm getting an active treatment, I must be doing better, is to actually do what we call blind the patient and the investigator to who's getting which treatment. We do the exact same evaluations in both groups of people, and at the end, then we are able to tell whether the treatment really made a difference. And that is fascinating that it's both not just not telling the patient, but it's also not telling the researcher. Can we talk, is this a question that you can even answer? I was just wondering if there's some sort of typical expectation of what somebody would go through on a clinical trial. You know, if there's a way to say this is probably what a a person uh, would have to sign when they're signing up for a clinical trial, this is how many doctor's visits, this is, you know, kind of your average clinical trial. Is there a way to answer that question and what would the obligation of a patient be who signs up for a clinical trial? So every trial is going to be different, but there are many things that are common among clinical trials. So if today I were talking to you about enrolling in a clinical trial that I was an investigator for, I would start out by saying, you have this illness. There are a number of options for us to try to pursue to treat your illness. One of them is to participate in a clinical trial. That trial, and then I would go on to explain why that trial is being conducted to compare a new treatment with the current best treatment, for example. Uh, I would explain that trial to you. You would be uh, given a, a written description of that trial. That description and my explanation would include certain things. It would say, we're going to be measuring certain things during this trial to see how you respond. So you're going to have to have certain tests done at different times. You'll have to have them done before we start the trial. So we have a baseline of of how you respond in those tests. Then we'll be studying them at week two, week four, six weeks, whatever duration is. We'd be telling you when you would get these tests. We would talk to you about how often you have to come in Uh, for evaluations. We would talk to you about possible side effects that could occur, uh, any inconvenience or unpleasantness or uh, pain or discomfort associated with procedures that we might do, blood tests that you would have to have. And then we would talk to you about what happens when the trial's done. When would you know the results of the trial? What treatments would we pursue after the trial's over, those kinds of things. And I'm wondering, Dr. Carl, too, once you sign people up and they commit to it, um, how many see it through? I mean, there's, like you said, there's side effects, life intervenes, circumstances change. I mean, what is, is there an average for the percentage of people who start a clinical trial that actually finish it? And in most clinical trials, in most illnesses, we would expect Uh, more than 75% of patients to finish the clinical trial. And most of the time, we're able to achieve that. There are certainly kinds of clinical trials where it's clearly more difficult. Longer trials are harder for people. But on the whole, I think we probably get uh, completion rates of about 
70 to 80 percent. And that sounds great. Do you work to keep the people in the trials? Yes. Uh, I mean, there have been a lot of things that people do to try to encourage people to stay in trials. There's certainly the investigators and assistants who conduct the trials stay in frequent contact with the patients. They try to solve problems that will get in the way of completing trials. They often produce newsletters for the patient participants so that they know how the trial's going. They recognize the important role they're playing in generating this evidence. So there are a lot of things that can be done to try to keep patients in trials. And what do you do to talk people into them? I'm not saying you have to use coercion, but I'm just wondering what works when you're talking to a patient about a clinical trial to, for them to say, yeah, that sounds like something I'm willing to try? I think there are a couple of things that are really important in talking to patients about clinical trials. I think it's important for patients to recognize that they have a unique opportunity to contribute to our understanding of how disease can be treated or ameliorated. As patients, not only can they potentially help themselves, but they can help others through participation in clinical trials. I think it's important for them to recognize that the purpose of the trial is not to benefit them, but to benefit others and everyone that they may receive benefit, but that that's not why we do trials. Where I have been able to contribute to my continuing survival is I'm not risk-averse. Again, Linnea Olson, who's fighting lung cancer. It wasn't as difficult for me to make that choice as it is for some people. In fact, when I was presented with this opportunity initially to join my first clinical trial. I had been told I had three to five months left to live. So I was between a rock and a hard place. Um, the clinical trial offered the first glimmer of hope, and I, I decided right that day, the first thing I heard about it, and I knew virtually nothing about it. But it just, I don't know. I guess the one place I don't want to be is where I have no options and a clinical trial has possibilities. There's no way that this medical research can advance without people participating in clinical trials. And I know that the percentage of patients who choose to do this is really small, isn't it? Between like 3 and 5%. And I think there are a lot of reasons. You know, I, I think part of it is fear, this this perception that you will be a, a guinea pig. Certainly there is some risk involved. The second clinical trial I was in, I had liver toxicity twice. And the first time I had it, it was grade four, which is very serious. So, you know, it's <laughs> things can happen. And that part feels out of people's control. But I also think that, frankly, it's difficult to enroll in a clinical trial. Um, They're not accessible. A lot of times they're only at major research centers. It's expensive and difficult for people to travel. And I think that the sponsors of clinical trials could do a little bit more, too, because Clinical trials are more expensive 
to participate in. You, you get the drug for free, but your insurance, if you have it, has to pick up the cost of the extra scans and such. And one thing that, again, I have heavily advocated for is we don't even get parking for free. <laughs> it's like, you know, you, you got to do something to, to make this easier for people because it's a huge commitment of time and resources. We'll take a break, and then we'll talk to Linnea some more, along with Dr. Ron Crawl, about the process of designing a clinical trial. The question we're asking is, is the experimental treatment different from, usually better than, the comparison treatment? You're listening to the Sound Medicine Podcast. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Welcome back to the Sound Medicine Podcast. I'm Barbara Lewis. And this week, we're looking at the challenge of finding enough volunteers to participate in clinical trials to test new drugs and devices. One finding from the Memorial Sloan Kettering study I mentioned earlier was that more than half of the consumers who were questioned say they were concerned about side effects or whether it would be covered by insurance. Nearly that many said that the trial location was too far from home or they worried they might only receive a placebo or that the new treatment just wouldn't work. And a third said they just didn't like the idea of being a guinea pig. Volunteer Linnea Olson told me that even though she was anxious about her first clinical trial, her experience ended up being reassuring. What I do remember is that the clinical trial nurses helped me so much, um, just there for support, there to make me feel safe. And I think the other thing that I really remember, and of course this is still true as I'm still participating in a clinical trial, but my original oncologist had told me, this was his viewpoint, that people in clinical trials often seem to do even better. And he thought part of it was just the way your team expanded. And it's true. Suddenly I went from having, you know, this one primary relationship with an oncologist to having a whole team. And the other thing that changes is your role, it you are no longer, even though it, it seems to, I, I find the word participant almost denigrating, but 
at the same time, there's something very empowering about being a true participant in your care because suddenly everybody wants to hear about every symptom and side effect. What would be your other word that you would choose um, besides a participant? It kind of sounds like partner is what you're thinking. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And I, that's an agenda, actually, that I push a lot. I There's a lot of talk these days about patient as partner, but um, my criticism is that sometimes it feels just like rhetoric. And we, we need to be partners in our care from both perspectives, you know. And there was something, I suppose, easy about just sitting back and letting a doctor make choices. But particularly as, as you go along a path like I've been on, where your choices become more and more limited, it is in your own best interest to educate yourself and to really get there in that driver's seat. So what advice do you give to people who are considering signing up for them? Well, you have to ask a lot of questions. Unfortunately, the informed consents that we are provided, I just learned, are are written to the age level or the education level of a sixth grader which I don't, I don't really understand this. I, I, I know that um, they need to make it understandable for everyone, but I just feel like they need to eventually be more sophisticated because this is a very important decision that we're making. So basically, I think you ask as many questions as you can. You do your best to educate yourself and to talk to other patients. Hopefully you have a wonderful oncologist, but I think at this point patients are no longer afraid of the Internet, and there really is a lot of good information out there. You just have to parse it. The Internet is making it easier to find clinical trials, not just sites like clinicaltrials.gov, but as Dr. Ron Kroll told me, things like Facebook, too. Social media has really helped in the recruitment of patients for trials. It's spread awareness. The existence of many social media sites, particularly in the disease communities, take the arthritis community. Uh, if you just went and Googled today arthritis clinical trials, you would find a lot of uh, social media type, either websites or groups or Facebook groups or Twitter accounts that are uh, trying to connect patients with the potential for uh, clinical trials. So social media has helped a lot. The second thing that I think has helped in recent years has been uh, the aggregation of a lot of trials in disease communities uh, together. So in cancer, for example, there are now really significant networks of sites and investigators who are performing multiple kinds of, say, lung cancer trials. And that means that if a patient is identified with lung cancer and doesn't qualify for trial A, those same investigators and sites can recognize that that person would qualify for trial B or trial C or trial D. So the patient doesn't get lost 
to the healthcare system and the potential for participating in trials. And, you know, I, I talk to family members who are well. I talk to groups of people who are well and not ill and, and not patients. And, and I try to emphasize that if we want a healthcare system that provides the best healthcare to all of us when we need it, we need to know what works in medicine. And this is how we find out what works. And if we think about that when we're well, then when maybe we're not so well, we're more inclined to say, not only do I want to get well myself, but I, I actually, in the process of getting well myself, want to help the rest of the people who might be like me. Those are the kinds of things that I try to emphasize. And that resonates with your with the people that you're talking to. One question I have is about research moving overseas, um, sometimes to developing countries. Uh, why are we seeing more research uh, being done overseas? Why is that? It's an interesting phenomenon that's about 15 to 20 years old, around the turn of the century. More and more of us recognize that we were not successfully completing trials in the United States or completing them fast enough or with the quality that we wanted. And also we recognized that a lot of the illnesses that we were trying to treat and the medicines that we were trying to develop were not just for the United States, but were for the world. And as a result, we began to explore the potential to be able to run trials, uh, not just in the United States, but in many countries around the world. And, and that's led to a recognition that there are many well-qualified investigators, well-trained hospitals with large patient populations available to them, patient populations who are motivated to participate in trials and can help us complete those trials and get the answers to the questions that we feel are important to answer quickly. So does it matter whether Americans participate in clinical trials? Is this something that could be completely outsourced? Does it matter that um, U.S. citizens participate? I think it matters a lot. Uh, I think it's uh, actually a central question for Americans. And I think there are a couple of reasons for that. One is that while the biology of disease may be the same in the United States and somewhere else in the world, culture, economic factors that influence disease, access to care, many other things are quite different in the United States. And I think we owe it to ourselves to be sure that the interventions that we're going to adopt in the United States actually will work in the settings in which Americans live and in the environment that Americans live. So I think we owe it to ourselves to know that Americans will benefit. I also think that we owe it to our American healthcare system to demonstrate unequivocally that the treatments that we adopt in the United States work here in our healthcare system. For many things, evidence that is generated outside the United States is directly applicable to the treatment of American citizens. But I think American citizens should care about generating that evidence themselves. My own view about an ideal healthcare system is that every one of us is in some way participating in some kind of clinical trial or maybe multiple clinical trials that ultimately inform our healthcare system. 
Does global research pose any ethical or, or safety concerns? I mean, if we're if, if this, these are all being done um, sometimes in developing countries, and is there an ethical um, dilemma here? Is there, are there safety issues? There's a very uh, significant ethical dilemma potentially present in the globalization of clinical trials, and the most obvious one is kind of an exploitation of persons in developing countries where they assume the risk but don't actually get the benefit. So in the setting where in a developing country, patients from that developing country have participated in the trial, they've taken on the risk to participate, but that medicine actually never becomes available to their community or their country, then we've really used them uh, in order to make a medicine available to us here in, in the United States. And, and that's something we simply can't do, uh, but it has happened in the past. What's your take-home message for listeners when it comes to participating in clinical trials? People should uh, ask about the potential that they might be candidates for participating in a clinical trial when they have visits with their physician, uh, even when they're relatively well. The reason to do that is because that's how we can improve what's available to us when we're ill. If I think all of us were more aware of the possibility that we could participate and we're actually asking for the opportunity, many more of us would participate. We'd be able to answer the questions that are critically important for improving our healthcare system and we would all benefit from that. I'm kind of at the very edge of what medical science has to offer right now. So I, you know, stamina and luck and a wonderful oncologist, all these things come into play because I have to play my cards very carefully now. I have very limited options. Well, you've been through a lot. Which is which is the understatement of the year, do you think? Um, yeah, but there are people who've been through so much more. I remind myself all the time how fortunate I am to have these opportunities and also just honored to have so many people working so hard to keep me alive. So Linnea Olson told me that she recently learned that her cancer is once again progressing. So she's weighing her options again. And I want to thank her for speaking with me, along with Dr. Ron Crawl, the former chief medical officer at GlaxoSmithKline. And if you're interested in finding out about clinical trials, you can go to clinicaltrials.gov to see which studies are currently recruiting volunteers. That's it for this episode of the Sound Medicine Podcast. If you like what you're hearing, please like us on Facebook and tell your friends they can find us at iTunes and Stitcher. And if you leave a review on iTunes, it helps other folks find us. The producer of Sound Medicine is Nora Hyatt with help from Eric Metcalf. Chris Lieber is our engineer and we have support from the IU School of Medicine. And we'll be back in a few weeks with another episode. In the meantime, take care. 
flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.